Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This episode is powered by denanywhere.com, the online extension of Den Meditation. Our primary goal is to make meditation and personal growth available to all so that you truly understand and learn to love yourself, thus creating more harmony and success not only in your life, but within the world. We offer online programs, teacher trainings, retreats, free meditations, and many programs to further your growth. So go explore all the possibilities. Go to denanywhere.com now. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, the founder of Den Meditation and your host. This is a fun one for me and like really personal because I have watched this girl grow right before my eyes and as the den grew, she grew. We have Laurasia Mattingly, one of our senior teachers at the den on today. She, if you've come to the den, you've taken her classes. She's amazing and a beautiful teacher and she started the den as a volunteer. So it's been incredible to watch her growth. She has so much wisdom to share and we talk a lot about what it means to kind of check in and follow your heart and follow your passion and how the success actually follows that and not to work backwards on what you think will be successful, but how can you check in with yourself and just live for joy and that then you will be taken care of. It's something we talk a lot about on this podcast, but I think She has some really concrete examples of her own life of just how success has just kind of fallen into her lap when she's also just taken these steps of understanding who she is and what she needs. You know, we also talk a lot about what it means to be adopted and identity and abandonment um, and also just the idea of losing a parent. She lost her mom at a young age and we talk about that loss and death and grieving and kind of using that as a motivator and a great teacher of life. So many beautiful concepts are covered in this. There's something for everyone. Plus, just so you know, she has an amazing workshop on our denanywhere.com site of teaching intention. And we do talk about what manifesting intention really means and how to do it without just being like, I want this, 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 and that, but actually putting the meaning behind it. And how do you actually get what you need and want? It's an awesome episode. I hope you enjoy it. Let us know what you think. Don't forget, we have that Facebook group, Den Talks Podcast. It's private. So let us know there. I get to sit here and talk to Larasia today. I'm so excited. Hi. Hi. So Larasia, who teaches with us at the Den, is one of our premier teachers. Anyone who's been to the Den probably knows and already loves you. And anyone who hasn't, please come in or go on Den Anywhere because she has a bunch of meditations with us and a workshop um, for intention. But she is a beautiful, beautiful teacher. And I think part of the reason is because you've really had your own journey getting here. But what I love about you is Larasia's just been with me since the beginning. Yeah. Since literally like she just knew she wanted a transformation in her life 
and she just like kind of forced me to hire her, which I yeah. think is great. I mean, she started as a volunteer, worked the front desk. She forced me to literally hire her as a front desk. I'm like, I don't even have the money yet, but like forced me. And then started taking every certification and just growing. And what I loved about you, every time I walked in, if you weren't with customers, you were reading and like really like reading or studying or trying to just improve yourself. And I was yeah. like, oh yeah, she is determined. Pretty amazing. Yeah, thank you. I know I feel so grateful that you have always believed in me and given me the space to grow and, you know, become who I am today. I mean, yeah, I remember, I think I walked in the den the first week you were open <laughs> yes. and I was like telling my roommates, I was like, I'm spending every single day at the den. And I thought that I was talking about the den, the bar. They were like, that's bizarre. <laughs> Why are you doing that? And I was like, I just need to be there. I want them to hire me. She's And my roommates were like, you want to work at a bar? And I was like, no, 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 no. The meditation studio. And so, yeah, I just remember spending every moment that I had free, taking all of the classes. And then finally, when I mustered up the courage to talk to whoever was working at the front desk at the time to ask how I could get more involved. And yeah, started volunteering three times a week, which is unheard of. By the way, I do. <laughs> let's start with that for a second, because yeah. I do think it's an important thing for people to know, especially anyone who's younger, who's listening to this. You did. You came and you wanted to volunteer, and you did. You insisted on three shifts, which, by the way, I love. Most yeah. people don't want three shifts. Yeah. <laughs> but you insisted on three shifts, and you always showed up, and you always worked your ass off, which is why when you did pressure me to like add you to the front desk, which at that time we had just started hiring people yeah. for the front desk. like We didn't have a big staff at all. Um, I, felt more comfort- I felt more comfortable doing it for you because I already knew who you were, and I knew what you were learning, and I knew you knew the studio and really cared about it. Yeah. So many people are not willing to put in that work. I mean, people might volunteer one shift and then they're like angry at you halfway through that they're not promoted or this, this, and that. Like, talk about that for a second, the idea of just having an idea of what you wanted and knowing the things you felt like you needed to do to get there. Yes. And being okay with it. Yeah, I think that I was, um, you know, graduating from college and struggling so deeply with what I wanted to do. I knew that I had a lot of energy to put somewhere. You know, I wanted... I was passionate about many things. And so, you know, anything that sparked a joy at that point in my life, I was like, we'll do that and do it fully. And the den was the one place where I felt just the happiest and the most at ease. And, you know, every interaction that I would have at the den, whether it was from a teacher or different students, I was finding this sense of belonging and a sense of community that I hadn't really had since, you know, my friends and sorority at college and all of that. So it was nice to find that place and a sense of belonging here that, you know, putting in the time and effort didn't bother me at all. In fact, that's where I wanted to be. And so, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful thing. So, but instead of you concentrating on the fact, like, I'm not getting paid for this, I'm actually helping, <laughs> okay. I'm doing work, you were actually looking at it more like, wait, I'm actually enjoying this. Right. I like the people I'm meeting. I feel like I'm getting something out of this. Yes, I think actually that's one of my biggest things that I've realized is just follow your joy and the money will follow. You know, I wasn't even concerned with that at the time because I think I was at such a point in my life where all I wanted to do was be happy. That, yeah, volunteer, getting paid, whatever. I just wanted to be at the den where I felt my happiest. And so, but I think it's so important. And by the way, this is not a PSA, come volunteer at the den, <laughs> but hello, we're always looking for volunteers. It's more, again, I do feel like there's something about this generation. People are not willing 
to do that part because there is so much emphasis on money that they feel like if that part's not coming in, then it equals no value. Like they either no value to themselves or they don't feel the value within themselves. Yeah. Not realizing how much value, if you look at it differently or see where you're growing or what you're doing, you are getting. And usually if you're in the right place or you're doing it at a place you're trying to grow at or just an area you want to learn more in and then go do something somewhere else, there's so much value in it. Definitely. That you might not see in that exact moment, but you might see it in the next job or somewhere down the road where you're actually cultivating something more that's just not tangible like money. Right. I just wish more people would like... Yeah, I think that because I did lose my mother younger, um, it was just so, like, some, a leaf turned over where I was like, all that I want to do is be happy. Life is short. Follow your joy. That's all that matters. And, um, you know, now looking at all my friends from college and, you know, seeing some of them making tons of money, but, you know, they might not be the happiest, that was never something that I wanted. And, yeah, it became just so clear to me that I just want to be happy, so follow what feels good. And in that time, that was it. And I'm so glad I did because now I'm living the dream and the abundance is <laughs> coming towards me, whether I'm seeking it or not. I just am staying true to what I love and, you know, what makes my heart feel good. And yeah, the money follows. See, I love that. Stay true to what you love and what feels good and the money will follow. Yeah. I think that, I mean, obviously that's a huge thing of trust. Yes. And I want to go back and talk about your mom too, but that's a huge thing of trust of which I think a lot of people don't have for right. so many reasons societally. Like we don't teach it. Right. It's not something that we learn growing up, but what do you feel is something people can learn about kind of that trust and where does that trust come from? You know, I mean, it wasn't something that I even was aware of or, you know, consciously learned. I think that just by living and losing someone that I loved I just have this new outlook on life that it's short and tomorrow isn't promised. So, f so do what you love. And that has just become, I mean, maybe almost to a fault, but now I just truly follow my heart and what speaks to it. Because Do you feel that. like you do that with everything? Like, are there times, whether it's even in your social life or yes. other things, are you good at saying no, though, <laughs> so also, good. when you feel like it doesn't resonate with you? Yeah, that's actually, I was talking, I don't even know who I was talking it, about that with, but yeah, I'm very good at saying no. Like, even I've come to a point where, you know, even if it's a best friend and it's their birthday dinner or something like that, and I'm not feeling up to it, I will happily say no. And then, you know take them out to lunch the next day. I had this teacher at UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center say, you know, it's better to grace someone with your absence than your presence full of resentment. And I think that that's so true. You know, it's always very that's clear beautiful. when someone's sitting there and they don't want to be there. It's like, Ugh, well, why are you here? I'd rather, you know, not show up and resent the person who we're celebrating or whatever. And then the next day, full of energy, happy to be there, take them to lunch one-on-one -on -one or whatever it is. But Have you done that recently? Yes. How, did, how, how does it go on the... I mean, it's good that you're on how does it go on the other side because I think so much for people is the disappointment, not wanting to hurt someone, right. you know what I mean? So how do you... How have you felt the reaction is and then how do you handle that part? So it's interesting because growing up, my dad was always uh, good at literature. If you commit to something, you show up, which I also believe in. You know, there's a fine line. Navigate, use your discernment and when to show up and when not to. But I think that my friends are so used to it now you know, they'll invite me th to things and if I say no, they don't take it personally because they know, I guess, that I've just become so selfish with my well-being. 
which brings it all back to that same thing that tomorrow isn't promised. So for me, I am selfish with my well-being. If I'm not going to feel good, why would I do something? Right. So. But that's amazing. I think that's an amazing lesson for everyone. But I do think people get... I mean, it's, self, it's such an interesting word, selfish. Like, why yeah. does it even have to be selfish over my well-being that, like, you're yeah. actually just taking care of yourself? Yes. But it's sad that that's the word we use because yeah. that is what we've been I prioritize taught. my well-being. Which is great, yeah, but, yeah. but you're not wrong in saying it because yeah. as a society, we have been taught it is selfish. Right. Like, you're not wrong in right. saying it. It just sucks that that's the word we go for. Do you feel like if a guy did it, do you think there's anything male-female about that or no? Or it's just in you general? Know? I'm noticing all humans struggling with it, whether it's male or female. I mean, yeah, like some of my greatest girlfriends have a hard time saying no because they, you know, are people pleasers and don't want people to not like them, which I am guilty of that too. But I've come to find like, you know, you can't fill others from an empty well. And if I'm feeling depleted, my presence isn't fun. Right. So how often do you feel depleted? Not that often. In this moment, I'm a little sick, feeling a little depleted by right. that. You know, I'm usually just this ball of energy, so it's pretty rare. Um, but definitely I've become an old lady where if anything's happening past eight, you'll rarely find me there. <laughs> I get it, me too, but I am an old lady. What depletes you? Um, you know, it's so funny because I think I'm a lazy person. I think we've talked about this right. before. And everyone's like, you're always go, 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 do, do, do. And I'm like, I feel quite the opposite. I don't know if that's like the Virgo in me where like I'm like subconsciously Virgos are always trying to be perfect. And, you know, I feel like I'm this lazy person who like teaches boxes, lays in my bed then teaches again. But when I look at step back and look at my life, I guess I am go, 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 do, do, do that. You know, in many of like tarot card readings or even when psychics talk to me or even just my friends, they're like, Larisa, do you ever slow down? Do you ever rest? And I feel like I always do, but Perhaps I don't do it enough because I am always go, 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 do, do, do. So I think that it's such a blessing that my job has become to be still. Right. And it's interesting because I do. I need meditation the most. And I'm so happy that my job holds me accountable to show up and be still with myself multiple times a day. Right. Yeah. How often do you meditate for yourself? When, it, when I'm not in class, which in the, when I first started teaching, I uh, wasn't able to drop in because I was like busy. You know, is, is that person okay? Is that person okay? Trying to hold the container where I think maybe after my first year I'm able to drop in. So not including, you know, dropping in twice a day with my two classes, but I'm a big nighttime meditator. Meditator. Well, I'm a big nighttime meditator. Um, I have my little like Buddha set up by my bed and my little eucalyptus, which I copied you here, um, and my incense burning, and I just take a few minutes, and, you know, it's funny, because I used to get so down on myself, I would try to meditate early in the morning, because you read, that's what all the entrepreneurs do, and um, a lot of times on retreat, you know, you're meditating first thing in the morning, but I'm learning to be a morning person, you know this well. But I don't think I don't think it's either or, I feel like we really need to do what works for you. Exactly. We're all built differently, exactly. so it's like... If you find that work like meditating at night is what works for you, I think it's great. Yeah, which it took a lot of time for me to be able to accept myself as a nighttime meditator. You know, being right. being that go 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 do do do. I was like, well, I want to be able to do it all the best. And so, um, coming to terms with that, I remember I think I was listening to Sharon Salzberger, Jack Cornfield speak, and they were talking about you know how they were on long retreat and 
they kept going to like the hall to have tea because they couldn't stay awake. And then they had a check-in with their teacher and they're like, what do I do? I, I'm so sleepy in the morning and it's just suffering. And I guess the teacher had said, well, maybe don't meditate that early in the morning. <laughs> and they were like, oh, it's that simple. And so I found that with myself too. And Heather, who's one of my master teachers who teaches here at the Den, she's the same as I am in the sense that, you know, an early morning meditation isn't our strong suit. Right. So. But that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. And by the way, if you fly halfway across the world, you'll be an early morning meditator. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there you go. So mark it down for those moments. Yeah. So. So you went through college. Let's talk about a little bit about your childhood. Like if yes. you were younger, would you ever picture this is something you'd be doing? Now, granted, you probably didn't even know it existed. But like, what was it you thought you'd want Not to do at in all. your life? So, um, yeah, I studied, I studied broadcast journalism and criminology in college. I always was watching, you know, Dateline and 48 <laughs> Hours. And I was always fascinated because as a child, I was always a scaredy cat. And so my mom said, well, if you want to not be scared, learn about something. Learn about it. And so I would just watch all of those true crime shows and read all of the true crime novels. And, you know, I realized, okay, maybe there isn't a serial rapist living under my bed. So what, I was going to say, <laughs> what were you scared of? Like, did you I was scared of, like, yeah, something under my bed, something in the closet. I was afraid of the dark. And, yeah, it used to, like, really frustrate my mom, like, seeing me as such a, a frightened child. So she was like, learn about it. So, like, what age? Like, were you always like that? Were you like that as a baby, too? I think probably until I was, like, graduated elementary school and I was finally like okay I'm not afraid but I always had the night lights like I was one of the last friends like on sleepover they're like you still use a nightlight and I was like yes <laughs> um but yeah then learning about it and I was you know I think that that really helped and so yeah going into college I was always fascinated by what drew these people to commit these sorts of crimes and you know, with criminology, it's more of the sociological background rather than the psychological. So what about their society or their family or, you know, all of their outside circumstances cause them to do that? And then on the other side, the broadcast journalism, you know, I've always wanted to be on TV and share whatever message I had. And so initially when I went into college, I was like, I can't wait to report the truth about life, whether it's criminology or not, but just in general. And then, you know, you know this well, but I worked the presidential debate my sophomore year. Um, I was the one of two people that got picked from our entire school uh, to work for CBS. At, I think it was Obama and McCain. And I was killing it, and I was a teacher's pet, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And at the debate, there was a spin room. And I was like, interesting, a spin room. And one of the producers for that room was like, yeah, this is where, you know, the opposite parties film each other and spin the truth. And I was like, oh, there's a room dedicated to lying to people. <laughs> and I, you know, stuck it in my back pocket, still doing my thing. But then one day it hit me. You know, my father, he's older. He's 83. He watches the news and believes everything that's on the news. <laughs> Bless him. And so I was, you know, finally it was all hitting me that I didn't want to be one of those people perpetuating these lies to people like my father. And so, and then I lost my mom. <laughs> and so then after that, I was like, all I want to do is be happy. And I realized that I was in broadcast journalism because I was good at it and it wasn't my passion. So let's talk about how old were you when you lost your mom? I was a uh, sophomore in college. I had just turned 20, one month after I turned 20, a little less than a month. And I remember it was the, f yeah, it was, we had just returned back to school. And so sophomore year, we're all moving out of the dorms, moving into a house, and I remember like two weeks in, I got the call from my dad saying, you know, we took your mom out of the hospital. She's on hospice care. She's going to pass away this week. Please come home. 
And so she had been sick throughout my whole high school, or like my last two years of high school and into college. Um, the doctor initially, when she was first diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, uh, they didn't think she would even make it that long. They were like, oh, we'll give her six months. But my mom, she didn't take no for an answer. She was still <laughs> golfing while she was getting chemo and killing it. She even won, I think, the President's Cup at her golf co- or, yeah, at her country club. And I remember she pulled me aside and had talked to me. And she said, Larasia, because we had gone on an East Coast college trip. She wanted me to go somewhere out there. And my dad always wanted me to stay close. So they kind of butt heads in that regard. But Why did she want you to go East Coast? I don't know. She had dreams of me going to Juilliard first for ballet or piano. And neither of those were happening. <laughs> and so then she like took me to go see like schools in New York and... Which I don't love the cold. So I was like, well, if we're going to the East Coast, I get to pick one. She's like, fair. And so I picked Miami because it was just like California and the weather. And uh, my dad was like, you should go close, stay close, somewhere in California. And yeah, when my mom was sick, she pulled me aside and said, you know, Larasia, go where you want. You should go to Miami because I got into Miami early. And she's like, I know that's what you want. And what's a five-hour plane ride compared to a five-hour car ride if you were in, you know, somewhere in California? And so she said, do that for me because I know you're, you're good enough. Go. And so I accepted or I got into Miami early and then she actually helped me move in with my dad, the whole dorm thing while she was on chemo, like killing it. Such a strong lady. But then, yeah, as I was gone, um, her health started declining and, you know, I would always call my parents and it came to a point where I would talk to her on the phone and she stopped kind of making sense. And that's when I knew, ooh, it's not looking good. And so I would come home for the breaks, you know. And my parents never wanted me to leave school. They're like, still stay, but, you know, check in with us and come home when you come home. And so, yeah, we had just moved in. My dad had helped me move into that new house, sophomore year with all my girlfriends. And then I was there for two weeks, and then I had to go back home. And one of my roommates, bless her, she was like, I have so many miles, like, take my miles. And so she bought my flight home. Izzy, shout out to you. Thank you. I'll never forget that. <laughs> And yeah, I went home and, you know, I try to block that part, that those specific memories of her like that out of my mind. Um, but yeah, that was tough. But knowing then that she was no longer suffering, which ultimately led me now to my spiritual practice. And How aware, so she was diagnosed your junior year of high school? Yes. How aware were you of how severe it was? You know, doing all the research and you hear that no one makes it out. Um, especially pancreatic cancer. It's one of those, like, you get it and your loved one's not there for that much longer. Um, I was aware of it, but my mom was, like, still golfing and working for the longest time. I was like, whoa, okay, maybe it's not that serious. But then for the longest time, she, you know, she had to stop eating and would eat out of a port through her neck for, like, the last year. And then I started seeing her health decline, and I realized, like, oh, my gosh. And I remember her telling me, you know, if it if I didn't have you, I wouldn't have done the chemo thing and I would have just lived my life and, you know, but she wanted to see me go to college and see me grow up as much as she could. How was that for you in high school? Like, how how was that for you? So actually, it was tough and, you know, a part of my journey. For so long, you know, I obviously didn't have my spiritual practice in high school. I was numbing the pain that I was afraid to face. You so know, how were you doing that? I had a mom dying at home, so I was burying myself and partying. I was a huge stoner, like high all of the time because any moment that I was clear-headed, I felt that sadness and I didn't want to feel it. I was seeking attention from guys because I felt guilty, like even just asking for my parents' attention at home because my mom was there. And so, yeah, I just, you know, was so reckless in my behavior, doing everything I could to not 
come home to myself, which now, you know, with all of this practice and years having gone by, I realize, wow, you know, to my inner child or my teenage self, like, I'm so sorry. But I spent so much time numbing so that I couldn't feel. And then, you know, the the practice came at the perfect time. Um, I became aware of all that I was, you know, brushing under the rug, that I was evading and avoiding, which ultimately always does come up. Yep. And so, you know, it was so necessary for me to have found the practice because who knows where I would be or what I would be doing. And it's funny because initially I never even was aware that I was numbing. And I think when I met you, I was in RIP, but Salma Zadora's Tantra training. Right. You know, and I went in thinking like, here I am, this empowered, you know, sexual being, and I'm going to just learn how to harness this energy and la, la, la. And, you know, every person is a teacher and she's still one of my greatest teachers. Right away when I got there, she made me become so aware of how I had been using sex to numb myself. And so rather than, you know, it being the experience that I thought, I'm the youngest one here, I'm having the most sex, la, la, la. It was a slap in the face. And I was like, holy shit. I have not been having real, meaningful sex my whole entire life. It was always an escape for me. And so, yeah, she really cracked me open. And that's when I found the den also in the midst of that. So I would come here and meditate. And I just became so aware of all that I had been avoiding. And so, and then I met Heather, which really was just like a deep dive into the heart. Yeah. And uh, then I, you know, after studying or coming to the den for months, going to her classes, working at the front. She had invited me. She also noticed that, you know, she'd read a book in class, and then the next day I'm like, Heather, I finished the book. What next? And so she saw, you know, that I was this devoted student and was like, come on the retreat, you know, like just come and help me volunteer, do whatever, but I, you need to be here. And so that's... Larasia was the one, like, ringing the morning yeah, bell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just so funny watching me, like, walk up and down the thing just ringing the morning bell. <laughs> yeah, so this was my first silent retreat. Actually, my first retreat. So it's funny that it was, like, the most austere kind you could do. Um, but it was the most transformative. I sobbed, I think, for, like, the first two days, really just holding the sadness that I had always been afraid to feel. And I think that, you know, with mindfulness and with these Buddhist heart practices that Heather would always, you know, teach me, I really learned that it was okay to feel that way. So when you went back, I mean, it's so hard at that age. Like when you went back to college after you said goodbye to your mom. Yeah. It's funny because my best friend in college lost her dad the sophomore summer. Uh-huh. And I remember it's just off. It's such a hard time because then you are in this place where you're so disconnected from your family at home anyway. So people almost forget that that happened because you're not even involved in people's families. Like you're in your own cocoon of like just friends. Right. So how was that for you coming back? Did that make it easier to escape more? Were there moments that you were just angry? Like, did you want people to understand it more? Did you feel really alone? Like what? So you touched into a few great points that I want to talk about. It's interesting because I think... So without even having the like awareness, I having that new leaf turn over, however you say that thing, mm-hmm. I all, almost like had this new attitude of gratitude, of being so, just so happy to be alive and having my studies and having my dad and having my friends and having this beautiful campus. And I never viewed it that way, you know? I was always caught up in like the little dramas of like, who's hosting this pregame and la la la. <laughs> and, you know, when I would hear my fellow college students like be upset about like a Chanel purse they didn't get for Christmas, you know, 
the new me having had lost, like having lost my mom, I was like, Oh my gosh, that stuff doesn't even matter. And so I had that awareness, this almost like I talk about it now, but like this learning, it's like joy. I realized there were so many causes and conditions around me, even though I was sad causes and conditions around me for happiness. Like I could celebrate all of the beautiful parts of life. And at the same time, I was, you know, escaping by partying and doing all of those things. So it was a little bit of both, this new wisdom, but also escaping because I didn't have the the practice yet. And also, I did feel alone at times because I was one of the youngest of my groups of friends. to. I was actually the only one in my group of friends to have lost a parent. And so it was actually very beautiful um, that there were a few girls in my sorority, older, that had lost parents. And... We went around, and I f- we always acknowledge chapter. I don't even remember the specifics, but after um, two of the girls came up to me, they were twins, and they had lost their dad in 9-11. And they came up to me, and they are like, you know, if you ever need anyone, I'm here. And actually, another girl that came up to me and talked to me about losing a parent, she used to work at the front desk for a minute. Caitlin, remember her? Oh, yeah. So we were in the same sorority, and uh, she had lost her dad when she was 12. So she came up to me and told me, you know, if you ever need to talk, I'm here. You're not alone. And so... That's something that I like to talk about a lot in my classes is so much of our suffering, you know, we feel like we're alone in it, but really it's nice to know that we're not because ultimately all of us suffer in these basic, you know, not basic emotions, but they're all similar. Like that was loss, you know, whether you've lost a parent or a loved one or been through a breakup, it's all loss nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Sadness, anger, anxiety, fear, you know, we've all been there in some capacity. So it's very freeing to know that, you know, we're not alone. So do you tell people to, like, reach out to Like, what do you recommend is for people to do? Well, what do you recommend for someone? We've talked about this on the show before, too. When someone goes through a loss like that, so many people around them do not know what to say. Yeah. And inevitably kind of piss off the person <laughs> yeah. going through the loss because their, obviously, emotions are all over the place and they're usually sensitive. Like I've seen it from friends of mine too that just get so angry at people where I know from like the bird's eye point of view, they're just trying. Yeah. But they get angry because they say something inevitably either stupid or inconsiderate in their right. minds. Like what is the best way for people around someone who's going through horrible loss? Like what what can they say? What can they do? You know, I would just say being there. You know, trying to refrain from offering advice. But you know, if... Being that friend that, you know, oh, I'll take you out to sushi, your favorite place. Because I think it's, I was just talking about this with my friend who recently lost her dad and she knew me in college. We were talking about how it's kind of like so annoying when people are like, anything you need, I'm here. And it's like, well, we need you to like walk my dog and pay my water bill. Are you going to do that? And, you know, so almost those offerings, like it seems a little bit insincere, even though it comes from a place of kindness. We were talking about how really those friends that, you know, do take us out to a dinner or come over and just watch a movie with us and sit with us while we cry or, you know, take us to play tennis if that was, like, your favorite thing. Whatever it is, just a friend that is there to meet you where you're at. Right. Whether that is a good day or a bad day for you. If it's sitting there and crying or taking you out to a movie, whatever the case, just offering your presence without... Spewing advice because that's like where it's like, uh, you, and then you go into that, like, well, you don't know what I've been through, but at the same time, it's like they have, they've understood loss, but probably not in that exact same scenario. Scenario. Do you feel like when you went back to school and you say you're, you were different, you had this different perspective, did it change your relationships? 
Yes and no. I mean, I feel so lucky. You know what? No. Um, I think that a lot of my college friends today tell me they learned so much from me and what I went through in that time, and which inspired one of my tattoos. <laughs> um, which is what? It's a, a lotus that's colored like the rainbow fish, which if you come to my classes, you guys know I always talk about Thich Nhat Hanh's book, No Mud, No Lotus. And it's funny because I got this tattoo before I even had a spiritual practice. So how'd I know? I have no idea. Um, but I got a, um, it colored like the rainbow fish. And the rainbow fish is this kid's book that, uh, you know, a rainbow fish has all his beautiful scales and he sees all of the gray fish swimming in the ocean and he gives away his scales. He wants to share the color. And so, um, what I had gathered from a lot of my friends telling me that they had learned from me during this process was, you know, that through my struggle, which a lotus blossoming through the bottom of a muddy swamp represents overcoming a struggle, through me overcoming my struggle, I have been able to share, you know, parts of myself and wisdom and teachings. And so that's why the lotus has some rainbow fish colored scales and some are missing because I've given some away. Oh, I love that. Yeah. But is it like the giving tree? You can't give too many away? Yeah, no. <laughs> I, still, I still have a lot of them on. <laughs> and that's why I've become selfish with my well-being. Well, I was going to say, but I mean, it is interesting of the balance of being the person who can teach and be there for people and show them, let's say, the way or, you know, teach them. But how do you not lose that in yourself? So for me, what I always tell, I think, and it's very clear in my classes because I am so human and half the time I'm like not forming real proper sentences. Um, but I always teach and I make it very clear that, you know, I have these tools that have worked for me. By no means do I know more than you. By no means am I more enlightened than you. But this is what has worked and so I will share with you. And so half the time I'll come to class talking about, you know, something that is bothering me and Students will come up to me and say, oh my gosh, that's exactly what I'm going through. Thank you, thank you. And I'll have a lot of my students tell me, you know, like that's what draws me to you is you express this humanness about you, you know, that you're still going through it. That by no means are you healed. You know, you're still healing. And I think that's what really draws people to the classes because, you know, I'm going through it with them. Right. And so that's why, you know, it's not a, a feeling of like giving too much of myself. I just you know, share what's needed in the moment and we all work with it together. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and anyone who thinks that people aren't healing always or growing yeah, always, always. There's, that's the misconception, I think, and that's what makes it hard for them to even begin that quote-unquote journey because it feels like there's a destination or an ending. Right. And then they feel like, well, how am I, like, it becomes, can I do this well? Can I do it great? How am I going to do it? Which it's not about that. Exactly. At all. Exactly. It's actually, I mean, I always tell people when you're willing to start going inside, it's one of the coolest experiences because A, it's always changing and it's never ending. Exactly. And it's just new and new layers of just peeling. And there's always, I mean, this is where I'll probably get a little more woo-woo than maybe everyone agrees with, but it's like that's when you get that feeling of you're not alone and like yeah. you're definitely being pointed in the directions you're supposed to be healed in. So it's like you may spend years working on X, Y, and Z and then only four years later start healing something that in the back of your head you've always known is an issue. Yeah. But it's like you just weren't ready yet. It's like you had to do all this stuff. And it's just, I don't know, I love it. You always just feel like there is someone guiding you and pushing you when you let go and are willing to just let it happen and not judge it. Exactly. Like what you just said, actually. I had always, 
you know, known that my birth mother. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that too. Yeah, like that that was like a, something that w- was resting in the back of my mind. But at the forefront, all I was working on, you know, healing was the sadness of losing my, my mom that raised me, my mom. And, you know, after diving deep and even meeting Hargapal, who's a wonderful teacher at the Den who specializes in family constellations and she's a Kundalini Sikh. But I remember one day she was talking to me and she was like, Larisha, have you ever considered meeting your birth mom? And, you know, I had never dove into that. I was like, no, like, I have no desire. And she said, you know, that, that's part of your unfolding of who you are. I would reconsider. And so I stuck that in my back pocket and I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, and then I watched Lion, which was this beautiful movie I think Angelina Jolie Ugh. directed. Oh my gosh, sobbing through the whole thing. Yeah, and anyone the, who's yeah. like been adopted, has adopted someone, it's like a hard one to get through. Yeah, which I think also is what drew us yeah. close together. But anyways... So yeah, I'm sobbing, the credits are rolling, and I click unblock on my Facebook. Uh, I unblocked my birth mom because she had found me on my 18th birthday, and my mom, you know, she took me out to dinner before I turned 18, and she said, you know, it was a closed adoption, but they've always been very open from the moment that I, you know, could comprehend life. Um, They had told me I was adopted and that, you know, my birth mother was my birth mother and that they were my parents. And so even in preschool and kindergarten, when kids would ask me, well, who are your real parents? I'm like, these are my real parents. Ugh, I know. But these are my birth parents. And so I always had a very clear, open, understanding, you know, relationship about this whole adoption thing with my parents. And so my 18th birthday comes around and my mom is like, your birth mom will reach out to you, guaranteed. Um, and she will probably ask you for money. And it's not you know, something to take personally, that's just the way Filipino culture is. And, you know, they view the person in the U.S. as like the one who is the breadwinner. And that's how like a lot of people are. They send the money back to their relatives. And so I'm 18 years old and my mom is, has been diagnosed with cancer at that point. And she finds me on Facebook and she says, all of these, starts saying all of these crazy things to me. Like, I'm your real mom and I love you the most and la la la. I know. And so I used to go to therapy with my mother about it. You know, I was like, okay. This is tough, but I feel like it's fair for her to see my life, but I don't feel like I'm in a place to talk to her yet. And so we established that that was fair. And then my mother passed, and my birth mom started saying all of these crazy things again, and so I just blocked her. I was overwhelmed. I was like, block. And by crazy, what are, like, what's crazy? She would just say things like, sorry about your mom, but I'm your real mom. And oh, I'm, God. Yeah. I'm just like, I can't. I can't. And so I blocked Dang. her. Stuck it in my, yeah. And then I had no desire. It was almost like anger was there. I was like, F this woman, like... But, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, and after diving into this spiritual practice more, Thich Nhat Hanh said, anger is just not fully understanding. And so I realized, oh my gosh, I have so much anger around this whole situation because I didn't fully understand. In fact, I don't fully understand what my birth mother is going through. I've never been through it. Only she knows what she's going through. So, you know, I started to have some compassion for her, and then I watched that movie, and you know, she still talks at me and now I'm learning to love her with boundaries. You know, she says crazy things to me all of the time. And then occasionally I'll answer like happy birthday. It's weird. She was born one day before my mom. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And so like, I'll wish her happy birthday or if same she's, year or no? I think different years. Interesting. It's so interesting, but learning to love with boundaries. And I think that, you know, having done this work now, um, I'm in a place where I think in the next year or two, I'm ready to go to the Philippines and meet her and be strong enough to have those boundaries but still come from this place of like, I want to meet you. You know, you were my portal to the earth and, you know, by no means were you my motherly figure, but, you know, I've got some of your DNA in me. So, yeah. 
Hey guys, teacher training is around the corner. So if you are in the LA area, please apply if this is something that interests you. We always have amazing feedback and we always grow teachers from there. Some that teach at the den and some who teach elsewhere. But if you are interested in kind of understanding where all of this comes from, where the voices come from, what the meanings come from, where these meditations come from, you will learn it here. Plus you will learn what your voice is in this whole world and how you can assimilate all of this knowledge and all these different lineages to be who you are. It's an incredible course. And again, even if you're not interested in teaching and you're just like, I want a stronger practice, this is for you as well. It's a beautiful personal journey. You know, I don't love that word journey, but it is. It's a beautiful personal journey. So please apply. It starts January 17th. Get on in there and hopefully we'll see you there. Right, here it is, our next Dentalks Live, the first one of 2020, and we have something super special for you. We've got Gal Sasan coming back, who you know, he always sells out. He's always amazing. He's already done two episodes with us, which have always been huge hits. So run, don't walk, go to dentalkspodcast.com and reserve your spot. It's going to be January 25th, which is a Saturday night, and he is walking us through the astrology of 2020. I know you guys are all secretly obsessed with that, so get your butts in here. He's going to tell us about all the energy we should be expecting, pitfalls, He'll answer all Q&A so you can make this as personal as you want it to be. So you'll know when not to buy the house, when not to break up with your partner, all those things we also really want to know. And frankly, if you're just interested in learning more about astrology, he is the guy because he is brilliant and he always has the most amazing observations to share with us. So go again to dentalkspodcast.com and get your tickets because like everything he does, it will sell out. So what do you look at? Like, it's interesting you say, what is a mom to you? So uh, all of these conceptual terms, I was talking with Hargapal. She kind of tried to explain to me, family constellations are just like a name and a meaning and a placement. And I was like, I never really fully understood it, but you know, it's so crazy how mom, the idea of mom, a female figure who like helps raise their younger child and preps them to be this woman and put them out into the world. And so to me, my mother was that woman. And my birth mother was just that portal. She was like the person, but not the meaning around it. But something we can even dive deeper into, you know, I think I talked about this with Heather, but it's like when you place a label on something and give it meaning of what it's supposed to do, these expectations, it's those expectations that create the suffering. So if if I'm putting that label mom on my birth mom and she's supposed to be supportive, prepping me to like be this adult in the world, la la la, she doesn't meet those expectations. So I suffer. Even with my mom, mom. What would you, if there was a label that you could put on her that would make more sense, what would it be for you? If I had to, I mean, portal to the earth. No, because it's interesting. It's funny what you say. Nicole's heard me say this ad nauseum. It's the part I struggle with the most as an adopted mom, like adopting yeah. a child, which is, and I've probably said it to you too, i so thankful to the birth mom, by whatever, and there's so many names around it. So thankful, love her. Same thing, very open with my daughter. She knows she's adopted. I'm assuming they will have a relationship. I have no desire to keep her from any relationship at all. It's the same thing. It's it's the story. It is what it is. I'm not trying to change anything, make up anything. So that's not it. Because some people feel like what I say next are like, but I'm so open and loving of that whole situation. The only thing that has bothered me is exactly what you just said, the label of it all. Yeah. And I've always hated that the word mom is in it. Because for me, I'm like, a mom feels more like the figure, like you said, that's like raising, creating, influencing for good and for bad. Because who knows if you do a good job or a bad job. But still, that person. And and it's funny because 
And some people use bio mom. Some people use birth mom. Some people have even started doing belly mom because it's only about like the belly. And I'm sure especially people who, but I found it interesting because people who do like sperm donors or egg donors tend not even to address that at all, which I find fascinating because I'm like, technically it's the same thing because ultimately these people really are just the egg and sperm donor. Like it's not, you know, and it doesn't even always have to be about rejection as you know, it's just like what life is. Or if you have a bigger spiritual sense of the world, it's like you were never supposed to be with them. Exactly. Anyway, it's the portal. And for whatever reason you had to get to these people and you needed to find a way, which I believe. I believe too. So it's interesting. That's why I'm asking you that because the way you described it is how I do talk about it with my daughter. I'm always like, yeah, you were in someone else's belly. You were trying to find us. You had to find a way. Like it's so again, not to diminish that you weren't with with someone else at a time, but yet she's almost at the age where I feel like we have to find a label, yeah. like an actual name or something, because yeah. you do at some point because you're talking about the person more and you don't want to pretend that person right. doesn't exist. So it's interesting. I'm curious, like if you could come up, like portal's a tough yeah. label though. I mean, I think... But I agree with the sentiment. Like, I like how... I mean, if we still have to use birth mom, because for me, that's all that I've known. And then, you know, my mom was my real mom. Life mom, right? Life mom. And it's interesting because, you know, people always ask me, oh, being adopted, did you ever feel, like, unwanted or unloved? Which, it's interesting because I feel like after, you know, being in the spiritual world and having all of these healings, yes, I'm dealing with subconscious issues of abandonment, unworthiness, not being wanted. But I know that I was the most wanted. In fact, I'm so lucky that my parents wanted me so badly to, you know, have found my birth mom and adopted me. And I truly am lucky to be able to be born and raised in L.A. Like, I could be somewhere in the Philippines doing who knows what. Right. And so I feel truly blessed and the most wanted rather than unwanted. But you say subconsciously you have... Right. So do you feel like anyone who's adopted, no matter what, that's something that they're subconsciously dealing with? I don't know if they'll... Yeah, perhaps. I think so. I mean, because I wasn't even aware of it until, you know, I've worked with different healers that are like, oh, from the womb, your birth mother knew she was giving you up. So inherently that's what's there. And now at least I'm aware, you know, because I think before in college and the way that I was acting and numbing, that all stemmed from that manifesting in those ways and now that I have the awareness oh my gosh well now that I have the awareness I can work towards healing it and so and do you feel like when your mom your life mom your mom left you know this plane this earth did you do you feel like there was another layer of abandonment oh yeah I talked about this I think um once before in another interview but and the woman asked me you know is do you feel like there's a void now that you have to fill And so, yeah, it's like one thing after another. My only, at the end of the day, my only sense of, you know, that old school sense of feeling of security and having family and loved ones and roots and is my dad. And my dad is 83 and he's like my only immediate family that I have. And so my sense of security is like, I always say it's like this really, it's small because 83 is old and who knows how much longer he has. So I notice this fear of being alone. Um, is ultimately my biggest fear and that it spills out into my life into the way that I do things you know I mean you've known me for a while the way that I pursue guys and dating you know I'm always in this like there's this undercurrent of like rushing like I need to find someone before forever before my dad dies like that's me I'm like well that's an interesting connection though at least yeah I'm like I want my dad to be at my wedding or at least you know someone let me find someone before my dad leaves me and so I'm learning, and he's so funny. He's like, you're the only one in a rush, Laurasia. I'm like, I know. 
So it's like I have the awareness and I'm still working with that. By no means is that part of myself healed because I still see it spill out into my life. And so, you know, that's it's healing's never ending. And that's what I'm still working with. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting. My dad's older, too. I think we've talked about yeah. that. And so he's 92, 93. So I think your dad might be slightly older to the age. Do you know how old he was when he had you? 50-something then, I'm guessing? So 83 minus 28. I can't do math, but... 55, am I doing that right? Something like that. Yeah. Like he was a little bit over 50. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, so they're similar. And I used to joke too, especially when I was raised, because I'm older than you are, that... um, my parents, especially my dad, were the same age as most of my friends' grandparents because everyone did everything so much younger then. And and it was weird. And I went through so much of my growing up always feeling like my dad was going to die. Yeah. Just assuming, like, what? I'm not in, like, a fearful having to hold on, just the same idea of, like, my dad's older, he's going to die, and I'm going to be the one without a dad, and everyone else is going to have their dad. And the craziest thing, and amazing and lucky for me is... So many of my friends have lost their dads or parents, and my dad's still here. And so you just really don't know. Oh, yeah. It's like we fall into like what we think is like what timelines are supposed to be, and you don't know. But yes, will he pass away at some point? Of course. I mean, that's the one thing we can't change or avoid for any of us. But it is interesting. I kind of did the same thing. I just always assumed, like I would cry over things that didn't even exist. Like I assumed he wouldn't be at my wedding. I assumed he wouldn't be... You know, you know what I mean? It's so interesting because I just assumed because my friend's grandparents were dying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he has like outlasted pretty much everyone. Everyone. And some people lost people younger or, yeah. you know, out of tragedy or sickness like your mom. And yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So I mean, yeah, he's so funny. He's like, we always thought, you know, I would pass away and your mom would be there to take care of you. And it's funny how the way things worked out. So Yeah, he probably had a lot to learn about what it means to take care of someone. Yeah, and he even said initially he didn't even want kids, and my mom was just not having it. She's like, well, I'm, we're adopting one. And so he was always just very, like, resistant, and now he's my best friend. I know you two are really cute. He's the cutest. He's the best. I right? mean, you have lunch, like, once a week, yeah. right? We have lunch once a week. He Every time I give him a card, whether it's for Christmas or his birthday or whatever it is, he'll cry when he reads it. And he's one of my greatest teachers. You know, I talk about it all of the time in my class. My dad is like this walking Buddha. He's so equanimous and grateful. And, you know, I talk about how he just, I feel like three or four months ago, this drunk driver drove into his garage. (laughs) And, like, it crashed into, like, his the garage crashed into his car. And he was telling me this story so calm. He's like, I guess I'm working from home today. And I was like, Dad, oh, my God, like, if that was me, I would freak out. I would call my boss in a panic attack and then call the pre- I would just freak out. And he goes, well, what's worrying going to do? It happened. Like, what can you do? So I'm working from home. And so I told uh, my class this. Sounds like me, actually. I'm always like, well, what can we do? Yeah. <laughs> and so I learned so much from him. And also, you know, my mother was such a hardcore, like, she would do her Tai Chi, yoga, Pilates, and eat organic. She was always doing the things but she was always very stressed out, especially with raising me. Like, she wouldn't let me have sleepovers. She was very strict in raising me, always concerned with my plans and my extracurriculars and la, la, la. My dad, on the other hand, to this day, still eats cup of noodles, Cheetos, Oreos, like, so unhealthy. <laughs> I found, like, the other month uh, a Campbell's, like, tomato soup that expired in 2007 or something. I'm like, Dad, what? He's like, it's fine. <laughs> I'm like, oh, oh, my gosh. But he has the most grateful heart. Every day he wakes up 
happy that he's woken up and that he shows you see. how important that is. And so my parents, I always tell people they're the ones that are my biggest teachers and you know, your attitude is everything. You know, my dad is here eating literally things proven to give you cancer, but here he is thriving, still practicing law, right. still golfing, eating, the, eating all the MSG, <laughs> <laughs> but he's grateful. And then it was my mom who was doing the things, eating organic, doing the Tai Chi, doing the yoga, but she was stressed. She was stressed. What was the core of her stress, do you think? You know, me. But it had to have been before you. Well, it's so funny. My dad's like, I don't remember your mom being stressed at all. No, so like, maybe it was you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that... But also, he didn't see it. He didn't it's see like it. If she was like a stricter mom... Yeah. Oh, we got in fights. We would get in screaming fights all the time, but... After she passed, I realized, again, this was the universe's plan. She had a short time to teach me all of those lessons. And she was really pushing. And she did. I got them all. (laughs) And working at the den, you know, we have some of those mystical students and teachers that talk to the dead or can channel the spirits. And I've had multiple people come up and tell me, you know, your mom is so proud of how strong you are. She was afraid that you wouldn't be. Mm. And so that's... I get it now. I'm like, that's why she was so... So do you feel like when you look back at some of the things you guys would fight or argue about, was it about strength indirectly? I feel like, yeah. I don't know, though, because I was also just like a tough teenager. I mean, yeah, me too. Yeah. (laughs) I was always pushing back, but yeah, maybe it was. I'm not sure. She wants you to raise your... I'm not really sure, but yeah, maybe. (laughs) What do you feel like your fights were about the most? Plans. I just wanted to go out all the time. And right. Then, she was really strict yeah, about yeah. that. I would, yeah. I would, she picked me up from junior prom at midnight because legally someone under the age of 18 is not allowed to be out. I was like, what, what the? Mom. How do you I, even know that? I know. <laughs> and I wasn't, I used to even, oops, my dad's going to hear me and probably kill me. But uh, when we get the, you know, your license or your permit and you're not supposed to drive other people. Right. But everyone's doing it right so I would drop off my friends and then bring the car back in and then they would like walk and I used to like sneak out of the house because it was so I wasn't allowed I was like allowed to have maybe one sleepover a month or something and so why do you think when you look back why do you think she was so strict socially because she was one of 10 raised in a completely different like my parents or my mother was um what do they call it oh my gosh an army brat not an yeah. army brat. I mean, There's yeah, a did word they move, for it. Were, were yeah. they in the military? Yeah, an army brat. So my grandpa, he was in World War II, and he uh, survived the Bataan Death March. He's epic. But yeah, all of the her brothers and sisters, they were born in the Philippines, Japan, Hawaii, all over. And yeah, just Asian culture. Um, it's very strict. And so I think me having this life, this like Lux only child life in LA, part of my mom was like, well, I didn't get that. So why should my daughter? And there was almost moments of like, yeah, she wanted, like I was the only kid I remember in my going through elementary school that didn't get allowance because chores are how I earned the keep of shelter over my head. And I would tell my friends this, that I like, you know, live in Beverly Hills and, you know, whatever. And they were just like, what? So what were your chores? I would have to do the basics, you know, dishwasher, wash, set the table, um, you know, bathe my dog, but like some bizarre things to like refilling her vitamin. <laughs> I love it. She put you to work. That actually feels very Asian culture. Yeah. Like you serve your parents. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that's really what I was doing. And it's so interesting having that, but being raised in like very liberal LA. So 
Yeah, I, that would put me through a lot of suffering in my mind at that time because I'm like, but this isn't how everyone else operates. And probably my mom's mind is, well, this isn't how the world operates. Right. So, so how do you, so talk about how do you date in LA? Because you're this young, gorgeous. <laughs> now, is it hard for you? Do you feel like it's hard to find a guy who matches you and the way you look at the world? Yes. And as I'm growing more and more spiritually, uh, well, it's interesting because initially, you know, going into spirituality. I think I was talking about this with Kristen a few months back. But I don't really want someone that's like as spiritual or on that same level because then it's too much. Right. I mean, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. We've experienced that. We don't have to talk about it yeah, on yeah, here. Yeah. But <laughs> Oh, yeah. She's, oh, yeah. She's had some doozies, my friends. <laughs> yes, yes. One of them. Yeah, whatever. But anyway, so just <laughs> someone that, you know, understands that I'm on this path and that doesn't judge it, you know, but I like that it's, it's kind of my thing, you know, because I find in the spiritual world it's so interesting. It's almost like it becomes... Not a competition, but people are like, I'm more woke than you. Well, look, like, <laughs> like anything, it, it still has its bullshit. Yeah. And so for me, my ideal partner would be someone that, you know, gets it, but isn't in this world. Like a conscious man, but, you know, his work is in something else. Well, that's kind of my situation, yeah. like, which I appreciate. Like he is so not in this space at all, but would never prevent me from being in it. Or right. Or keep going or any direction I come back with it. I'm like... Oh, I feel like I need to do this. He's like, absolutely, go do it. You know, there's yeah. only support, but it's not like he's like, can I join you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm also okay with that. I like he wouldn't go with you to white tantric. <laughs> oh my, are you kidding me? He would break up with me on the spot. Yeah. Um, no, that would be a little extreme, but he does come to class and he will, yeah. if I'm like when we're traveling, because I usually do, he'll like sit and watch TV and I'll do my practice. Yeah. Every once in a while, like I can drag him down and get him to do something. But it's the same thing. I don't force him to sit down with exactly. me and practice. It's like, if you're going to take these two hours and watch TV, but I get a chance to then do my practice, it works for both of us. Exactly. But it's that mutual understanding of like, but supporting each other. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's a huge misconception that everyone has to do everything together. Exactly. Which I think it's beautiful. It's like the strengths and the differences. And, you know, yeah, finding a partner that, you know, has the strengths where you perhaps have weaknesses. Yeah. Like I'm not type A by any means. And so I think that would be nice to have. Yeah. <laughs> or someone who's more business savvy, like understands math and science. I'm kidding. Um, but Look, no. She's like, these are my prereqs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These um, are the funniest descriptors of who I want to date. But I'm learning now even little things like someone who is driven, like having d dated in LA, there's so many people where I'm like, in my mind, they check all of the boxes, but, you know, it doesn't feel, actually, okay. So reeling it back, I guess what I'm realizing now is that I have become picky and I should stay picky, <laughs> um, but that it's not about checking all of the boxes. Ultimately, it's about how you feel after or while you're with that person. Because I've had several people come into my life where I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm literally manifesting <laughs> what my list used to be. And now, you know, I'm let go of that list. But you know, someone would come in that's the dual citizenship that also boxes, that also has the Tesla that lives in Venice, but I would feel empty or unworthy and I'm realizing that's not it. It's it's so much more now that feeling of, you know, feeling like my I could be my truest self without judgment. I can feel at ease and I can go through my tough times. I can go through my beautiful times and just be who I am without worrying. I think that's exactly right. And yeah. I feel like that's, I tell people that all the time. It's, and we should talk about it because you actually teach an intention yeah. class. And it's all about, yeah, and which we have on Den Anywhere. So yes. if people want to take it, please do. It's awesome. But talk about like your philosophy on 
manifestation and intention. Yes. So it's interesting because I've become very good at manifesting work things. Like, because I think I'm less attached to the outcome. I'm right. like, follow, like I talked about in the beginning of this, it's like, follow your joy, follow what's, follow what feels good and the rest will follow. Right. So I've been very good at calling in something. I'll even have this idea and then it'll come to me and I'm like, wow, and then I'm doing it. And so my philosophy, uh, philosophy on intention and the way that I typically guide my class is uh, we begin first with, you know, just the visualization. So many of us haven't taken time to, you know, picture what our lives might look like if we had that thing. Uh, and then the second step, which to me is the most important part, is feeling, you know, getting clear on, okay, if you had what you desired, how would that make you feel? And so for the longest time, you know, if you asked me, what do you, how do you want to feel if you had your dream partner? I'd be like, loved, cherished, seen, heard. <laughs> but as I'm resting in my meditation and, you know, picturing this image of me and my partner, whoever he is, also feelings arise of, you know, wanting to feel safe, wanting to feel secure, wanting to feel at ease, which if you just told me to write these things down, I wouldn't have been able to do. So that's why I think this process is so important for seeing and then feeling and then being able to embody it, which is that third step I talk about a lot, you know, and I could do this with work <laughs> time and time again. I'm like, oh, I'm still working at doing that with the partner, but, you know, carrying yourself as if it's already here. And it's not just spiritual practice or spiritual people that are saying this, but even if you read business books, entrepreneurs always say spend time around, you know, the five most successful people in your life if you want to be successful or spend time with those people that have that vibe that you want to attract because you are, you know, who you surround yourself with. And so it's that embodiment, okay, carrying yourself in that way, which to me, right, right when I began teaching, I think, you know, I was like, oh, I'm good at this. And so I kind of didn't have a an issue with carrying myself like that because I knew I was. I was like, yeah, we got this. <laughs> and all of the things started coming effortlessly. Um, so it's interesting working with that with a partner because I think still subconsciously I've got a little more work to do. We always do. but So yeah, working with that. But then the fourth step is gratitude because I found you know the, grat the grateful heart is the most magnetic heart. Um, when you come from this place of appreciation, it just shifts everything. Mm -hmm. And another, the same teacher at UCLA, she's so wise, Mitra, shout out to her. Um, but she said, gratitude is a having in the midst of not having. So we can be so focused, especially in this process of setting intentions or calling in what we don't yet have. You know, for me, I'm always focused on, I don't yet have that partner. But gratitude reminds us, okay, in the midst of not having, because this is also not here, we're not going to ignore that you don't have it, it's here. But what else do you have? So I don't have the relationship yet, but I have my dream job. I have my dad. I have my friends. I have my community. And so to me, that was like, oh, I love it. We're not saying like think positively and forget, you know, what you don't have. Right. It's what do you have in the midst of that? I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. But that's a huge mind shift, which a lot of people, oh, yeah. it's kind of where we started this whole conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we want to bring it full circle, it's like, you know, you're trying to grow somewhere and you're willing to put yourself out there like a volunteer like yeah. what made that successful for you is you looked at what you had by volunteering yes. versus what you weren't getting by volunteering. And the next thing you know, you skyrocketed through it. Exactly. And it felt good. Like had it been what was on my checklist? Like, no, I don't think that, you know, that was on my checklist of what my dream job was at that time. Right. One, not getting paid. You obviously want to get paid, but volunteering. But it was what felt good. I was like, this is how I want to feel. So I'll stick there. And then the rest followed. 
I, I mean, I want to actually kind of end around that because I do feel like if people take one thing yeah. away is the idea of letting success be the barometer, be how you're feeling. Yes. Because I think a lot of people totally get so disconnected to their emotions or how they're actually feeling for good and for bad because they're so concerned about perception or what is supposed to be. And I say supposed to in quotes. Yeah. And it's true. And if people could just let the barometer be on the heart. Yes. And the feeling. Yes. They'd be surprised what paths will actually come oh, down for them. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that is my greatest lesson that I've learned is just follow the heart and yeah, to me, success is that. It's like, how are you feeling? Because you can have all of the dollar bills and the house and the partner, but if you feel like shit, then how is that success? Exactly. Then how is that success? It's not. Yeah. At so, all, at least not for me. Yeah, so I guess right now for me, yeah. Or not right now for me, but always. Like, it's just following what feels good. And sometimes the thinking mind will come in and try and sway me from that, trying to validate or justify other things. But Always what it comes back to is just following what feels good. I love that. Let's all try that together and yes. see what happens. Yes. Let's do, she's going to do a loving kindness, self-compassion practice. But in the meantime, let's do your four years. So number one teacher, that's the biggest influence in your life. It doesn't have to be, it could be a book, it could be author, it could be a spiritual teacher, it could be someone you go to. Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh and Heather Preet, which are one and the same. <laughs> um, Heather Preet. She would love that yeah, you just said that. She, I was introducing her at, the other night is my master teacher. And she's like, I love that. Um, she's a teacher here. And she's really the woman who took me under her wing and showed me and guided me, you know, through life and how these practices can help me, you know, become who I really am. I said that horribly. We can, whatever, it's fine. <laughs> no, okay. no, I mean, I, it's exactly right. Yeah. And then um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who she teaches from all of the time, who's one of her teachers. I mean, I quote him all of the time in my classes. I read from his books all of the time, but his book, uh, No Mud, No Lotus, really changed my life. It was transforming the art of suffering and learning to meet those difficulties with a kindness. And so it's funny that I have those lotus tattoos on my body before I even knew about it. It was always part of your path. Um, what does your practice look like? Your personal practice. Personal practice look like, like, what is it? Like, what, what do you doing? do, like, on a daily basis? Oh, or, so when no, I, or not do. I was like, well, it looks fashionable. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I used to go in and be so intentional with, like, okay, if I'm angry at this person, I'll do a loving kindness practice. Or if I'm feeling, you know, poopy, I'll, you know, cultivate joy. Or, you know, if I'm dealing with a difficulty, I'll cultivate self-compassion. But I've come to find as my pr practice progresses going in without an intention and just turning towards myself and asking what's there and giving myself the space to actually like even feel because half the time when I go in with this idea of like what I need to do in my practice, which isn't the practice, it's, it's a being and not a doing, um, you know, I cover up what is trying to be felt. So now I've just began, you know, in my practice, just, you know, giving my emotions the floor. What's here right now? And then things will come up. And then once it comes up, I just meet it. Which kind of led me to, or leads me to what our practice is going to be today, which ultimately is my favorite practice ever, which is an acceptance of ourself in this moment. Love it. What is the first thing you do when you wake up? Oh, right in my, sorry, my nose. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're all we're of us. <laughs> I know the two of us sound slightly congested uh, today. <laughs> the first thing I do when I wake up is write in my five-minute journal. Um, it's a new, I've like, I'm, going ham at it. I think it's my Virgo tendencies, but 
It was given to me as a gift and I have not missed a day yet. It's a five minute journal where you list three things you're grateful for, three things that would make today great, a positive affirmation. So that's what you do first thing in the morning. And then before you go to bed, three amazing things that happened and one thing you would do differently. And I have noticed such a shift in the way every one of my days unfolds because of it. Really? Yeah. Like I'll start my day like that. And then, well, I used to, ever since I got back to Bali, I haven't been, but I would write in the gratitude journal and then I would go for a run. And as I'm running, I'm like, holy shit, I'm so lucky that I have like this strong body that, you know, I'm in California and, you know, it just sets the tone where everything is great and I'm just happy to be alive. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So a gratitude journal. Yes. Okay. Game changer. Game changer. What's your current obsession? I still has and always will be, I think, boxing. Um, I know you've gotten so strong. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. I think a lot of my students here at the Den, they are so confused when I tell them that I box. I don't uh, get, I, I get it, though. Yeah, it's both. I mean, I think we, we actually even filmed a cool little thing here at the Den. But I talk about how, you know, boxing and meditation really are one and the same um, as far as presence goes. Because when I'm boxing, I have to be in the present moment. There's no time to worry about the past or future. You have to be present. And even if you try, like I've even like experimented with trying to bring my mind somewhere else and you literally cannot. Right. So boxing is my moving meditation and I'm obsessed with it. I know you do it every day almost, right? Like four times a week. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Thank you. I mean, Laurasia literally, like we said, has been with us from the beginning. It's been amazing to watch you grow and evolve and change. And I love what you've done for this community and how much you're teaching everyone with just by figuring out who you are, which is so beautiful. Thank you. No, I mean, it's been a pleasure for me. I do. I always say I felt like her sister, and then I realized she calls me her mom. I just have to to accept it. I'm like the second mom. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I love you, and I'm so happy to have you here. I'm so happy to be here. So stay tuned. She will do her personal practice. Now Laurasia is going to lead us in a personal practice, a loving-kindness, self-compassion meditation. Yes, so this practice has become one of my favorites because with loving kindness, what we're doing is, you know, offering ourselves this wish um, of happiness and well-being. And so one of my favorite practices to do, especially with myself, uh, is meeting myself where I am. You know, sometimes it can be very easy to be hard on yourself, especially if you're in the spiritual world. You know, you have all of the tools in your toolbox to make yourself happier, make yourself, you know, more relaxed, that... Sometimes it's hard to accept those days that you're in a mood or days that you're stressed or days that you're, you know, a little angry or on edge. And so what I've come to learn over time is just the greatest gift we can give ourselves is meeting ourselves exactly where we are. So if you're in a mood or if you're feeling great or if you're feeling however you feel, uh, this practice is for you. And so we'll begin. So finding a comfortable position Settling into stillness and allowing the eyes to close if they haven't already. And on your own, taking a few deep, settling breaths. And I like to think of each breath as a gentle letting go. So a gentle letting go of our day thus far. A gentle letting go of any to-do lists. A gentle letting go of any expectations. 
and allowing your attention to arrive here on the present moment. And so we begin to investigate the present moment. What's going on outside of us? Noticing the sounds of life happening around us. Maybe feeling temperature. Maybe sensing the clothes against the skin. Maybe noticing the heartbeat, the breath. I'm beginning to check in with how the body feels in this moment. Does the body feel tired, energized, peaceful? Maybe sore from a workout. And so we honor how the body feels today without judgment. And checking in with how we feel emotionally today in this moment. Checking in with our mood. What emotions are here? And so maybe we'll find stress, joy, sleepiness, anger, longing, maybe all of the above. We're just witnessing what emotions are here without judging, giving ourselves permission to feel how we feel. So without changing anything, without needing to fix or solve or figure anything out, we just soften into what's here. We honor exactly where we are. And so we can work with a phrase silently in the mind. May I accept myself as I am today. May I accept myself as I am today. So with this acceptance, you're giving yourself permission to feel how you feel. The kindest gift you can give yourself, this presence and acceptance. And in this acceptance, there's also an understanding of what it means to be human. We feel all of the feelings. 
So however you feel today, working with the phrase, may I accept myself as I am. So it can be very freeing because every moment is changing. So perhaps there is a moment of stress. Perhaps there's a moment of anger, a moment of deep sadness. By saying yes to that moment, it doesn't mean you're saying yes or defining who you are. Because a moment of sadness doesn't mean you're a sad person or a moment of stress doesn't mean you're a stressed out person. It's just a moment. Every moment's changing. So can we accept ourselves in this moment exactly as we are? Giving yourself this kind, kind gift today. Taking a few more conscious breaths here. Gently coming back to the body. Noticing sounds. Wiggling the fingers and toes, coming back. Taking a mindful stretch if that feels good. And coming out of practice and opening the eyes when you're ready. Thank you. Ten Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also, wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.